This morning is March 19th, 2006. It is Sunday morning, and our message this morning is called Fear. I had several conversations with people yesterday. You'll all be thinking I'm talking about you, and that's okay. It's a small church. (laughs) But it, it ought to be empowering to you to know that I had the same conversation several times. So if you think I'm just talking about you... You can look to your left and right and be assured I'm talking about them as well. (laughs) And then you can stare up here at me and realize I'm talking about me too. Turn with me to Mark 4. Don't like that scripture Judah read off CD? Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. That is a really true scripture. All right, y'all in Mark 4? Matthew and then Mark. I love the story of Mark in the Bible. John Mark gave up on a missionary journey, didn't he? What do we think about quitters? <laughs> Not something that we all esteem to be, is it? We all point at times in other people's lives when they failed. We forget John Mark. He didn't just turn back on a missionary journey. He also wrote the Gospel of Mark. I would say that is uh, something that might outweigh the other, huh? Amen. Thomas, doubting Thomas. No? Thomas is the first guy in the Bible that says both my Lord and my God. We need to learn to see what people can be, not what they are today. I need that from you. I need you to see what I can be in Christ, not what I am today. Because what you see today may not be all that polished, might not get all the words right. I might even be crass occasionally. That'll shock you, huh? (laughs) If you come to a church work day, you might notice that I don't get everything right. I may even get frustrated a time or two, but it's okay. Because I am not done yet. My life is changing. It's progressing towards Jesus. I am on a journey, and you're on that journey with me. That's what makes us a part of the community of believers, the group of called-out ones, God's team or the church. That's what a church is. By the way, with this work day that we did, aside from all the jokes about us needing healing in our bodies now after working yesterday, it's not about the work. I love you all, but I can paint. I can sheetrock, I can cut things, I can drive screws, I can hammer nails. I can do those things. I wanted you all there because it's a sense of camaraderie. We learn, we grow together, we share stories. Ten years from now, we'll remember that paper towels caught on fire in the kitchen. (laughs) And cool, calm, and collected Craig just moseys over with a glass of water and puts that out. I'm going to call him the fireman from now on, you know. Everybody else is yelling, fire! And Craig's just pouring out the water, you know. Yelling Mark 4? I love you. What I'm getting at is I'm enjoying sharing my life with you. And all I want from you is for you to share your lives with me and with each other. That's what the church is about. That's what, as much as I'd like it to be about the worship or about the preaching, it's about us sharing and experiencing each other's lives and having one common purpose, seeing the kingdom advance. Amen. You all in Mark 4? The parable of the sower. Mark 4, 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. I don't feel so bad about preaching in a garage. Jesus preached in a rowboat. (laughs) All right. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow a seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. 
Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When we focus on this parable of the sower, we usually focus on the one that made it and bared thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold in crops. And we forget that the others were destined to do the same. They didn't. They didn't reach their destiny, but no farmer walks out and throws seed and says, ah, this one's not going to make it. You plant a seed because you want something from it. That's the reason for planting a crop. Well, the first one falls upon hard ground. Never really takes root. We understand that. Second one has shallow roots. Doesn't make it in times of persecution. This morning, though, I want to talk to you about this third root. Aren't you glad that Jesus often explained His own parables? That leaves us from being dependent upon people smarter than us, right? You don't have to read Barclay. You don't have to read Matthew Henry. You don't have to read anything else. Just keep reading the Word. It'll interpret itself. Watch what He says. When He was alone, the twelve and the others around Him asked Him about the parable. He told them, The secret of the kingdom has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Aren't you glad to be in the kingdom? You need to know this morning is not what our topic is, but you need to know God desires for you to know the truth. He desires for Him, His ways to be revealed to you. That's His goal. The only people that He doesn't want to understand His ways are those that are stiff-necked and are outside of the kingdom because they're not capable of it. Watch what He says here. Uh, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Isn't that interesting? There's some people in this world that are hard-hearted, some that already think that they have everything right and all they can do is find fault with everyone else because it enhances how right they are. They're the ones that Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He was looking for those people who knew they needed His help. He didn't waste His time with those that thought they had no need of God's help. Well, they would hear the Word, but they'd never understand it. They'd be condemned by what they heard and didn't apply. But to us, we're supposed to understand and apply this Word. Why? Because we know we need God's help. It's like a medicine, and we want this medicine. You're not turning it away. You're not saying it's for somebody else. You're looking wholehearted in the mirror, seeing your imperfection, your weakness, your pain, and saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to help me. This is for you. The secrets of the kingdom of God are for you this morning. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on the rocky places, hear the word and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the Word, they quickly fall away. 
verse 18 begins the seed I wanted to talk about this morning. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. God's desire for your life is that you bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And the reality is no seed hits perfect soil. It doesn't. I know that was an example, but it's a type and it's not a perfect type. Soil has to be worked. Man was put here to work the soil. And what was Adam told? That it would resist him. It'd be by the sweat of his brow. The Word of God gets planted in your hearts and you have to work to make things grow. This Word is supposed to grow in you. It's supposed to permeate your whole life. It's supposed to be like leaven working through the whole loaf. But it takes work. You say, well, what, what, what kind of work? I just believe it. If you believe it, then you must act like you believe it. And friends, it is work. Every time that something tells you What's in the Word is not true, is not real. Did you know that the Word says you can do all things? How many times have you faced a problem and said, I can't! It takes work to believe that you can do that. But you were put here for that purpose. Those are thorns and thistles in your life. They're working to choke you, to choke out the Word. Why? To keep it from being fruitful. An enemy has sown seeds into your life. It may have started when you were a child. So what? If they're there from yesterday or they're from 30 years, your job is to identify them and to pull them out. Whether or not your daddy was a good daddy is beside the point. Whether or not your mother was a good mother is totally beside the point. We need to get beyond it. You've got a heavenly Father that's good and His Word is here. And He tells you the right way to live. You know what the problem with blaming mom and dad is? They had a mom and a dad, and they weren't perfect. And they had a mom and a dad, and it goes all the way back to one man who was the federal head of the human race who, just like you, made mistakes. Grow up. Quit blaming others for the problems in your life. Take responsibility for the fact that God has called you to work. And what is your work? To believe on the Son. It's to accept His Word and do what His Word says do. That means that if the Word says, do not forsake the gathering of believers, and you're tired, and you're laying in bed, and you're thinking it'd be better for me to get some rest. That's not what the Word says. The Word says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come on you like a bandit. That's what the Word says. But what does your flesh tell you when the alarm clock goes off? Oh, man. They just don't understand. i got to go to my secular job tomorrow. What difference does it make? You weren't called just to make Legos for Tycho. You were called to advance the kingdom of God. There is one thing you need in your life, and that's for the Word to become fruitful in you. That's priority number one. That's the first and foremost priority in your life. Not your image. Not your pride. Not your body's rest or what you'll eat tomorrow, or what you'll wear, or anything else, priority number one is seek first the kingdom. How many times have you not done something because you were worried you'd look stupid? 
Eric, you look stupid anyway. That's right. And I'm happy to be a fool for Christ. Now I'm free from worrying about image. What's a dead man worried about the way he looks for? When you look at me, I hope, my goal is that what you see is a dead guy that has been raised to life in Christ. So what if it looks stupid when Eric dances and worships and claps out of beat? My goal is just to worship the king without throwing you off too much. <laughs> so what if it looks stupid? Some things are worth looking stupid for. You ever have a question you wouldn't ask in a group because you're worried they might think you were dumb? If you can't ask a question in your own church with the house of God, if you were worried about the people that are pledged to give their lives for you in the way that you look among them, how on earth are you going to stand with the wicked out there and stand up for Christ? Friends, this is the huddle. This is the huddle on the playing field of life. The people on your left and right are your team members. They lock arms with you. They are here to perform outside of the church what they've practiced in it. If you can't get it right in the church, you might as well give up now. And if you don't want to give up now because you're convinced that the king is worthy of your life, then set it in your heart that you're going to get it right at least in the church so that perhaps it will spill over into the other areas. I can't tell them the things I struggle with. I just couldn't be honest with Alfonso because if he knew, if he knew, he'd look at me differently. If he's in Christ, he can't look at you differently. When he looks at you, the Bible commands him to see Jesus. He said, well, I'm just... I, they don't know. Can you imagine why God gave us leaders like Paul? The man had murdered Christians and then went around teaching them how to love one another? Could there be a more glaring contradiction? Get over yourself. Okay? And if you're having long, extended conversations with yourself about what you should and shouldn't do, stop it. Read the Word. Decide to take that stand and don't discuss it with yourself or anyone else anymore. Do what the Word says to do. Hey, hey, come on in. Turn in from Mark 4. I want to start in James 1. So you'll turn to the right in your Bibles. Good to see you. The whole point in Mark is that there are thorns and thistles in your life, in all of our lives, that work to choke out the fruitfulness of God's Word. And all God really wants from you is to produce fruit in His kingdom. So it's our job to identify the thorns and thistles and begin to tear them out. Now, when you think of thorns and thistles, you tend to think of things that you're doing that you shouldn't do, right? When a Christian thinks of sin, what do they think of? Oh, I cursed and I shouldn't curse. Oh, I saw something and I shouldn't have seen that. What else? Come on, y'all don't act like you don't know what a sin is. What does a Christian think of as sin? I did something bad that I should not have done. James 4 teaches us that's all those things may be sin, but that's not how sin is defined in the Bible. Think about this for a minute. Sin is defined in the Bible in James 4.17. You can trust me on this because we're going to be in the first chapter this morning. As the good that you know that you should do 
and do not do. How many times have you known something would be good, but you've been talked out of it for image or for fear, for money, for prestige, for a little more sleep? The Bible defines good or defines sin as not doing the good that you know to do. That is a thorn or a thistle choking out the Word in your life. We have to identify it. We have to pull it out. Guys, fear has no place in Christians' lives. Said, well, what do you mean, Eric? Fear has no place in our lives. I mean, isn't fear a healthy thing? Didn't God give us some kinds of fear? Well, of course that's true. What's a good kind of fear? If I drop Judah in a tank with a great white shark that's hungry, should he be fearful? Of course. That fear tells him don't get in the tank, right? But if God tells him to do something and fear stands between him and what God told him to do, then it's wrong. You can't yield to it. For that purpose, you can write this down, and it's not mine, but you ought to write it down if you have a pen. Fear is false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. These are the lies that the devil tells you to keep you from doing what God told you to do. God tells you to move into a neighborhood in such and such place. What's the first thing the devil tells you? You can't afford it. You can't leave your friends and your comfortable surrounding where you're at. He'll tell you anything. He'll present any false evidence as if it were real to keep you from doing what God told you to do. And that's like a thorn choking out the fruitfulness of God's Word in your life. If it's contrary to what God said, you have to cast it aside. You have to. Because man's job was to garden. Man's job was to work the soil. And the first soil that you have to work is in your own life. You have to provide an environment where you can be fruitful for the Lord. Then God gives you a family. And you work the soil of your family, creating a household that you are the priest of where it's fruitful for God's Word. And it can bear fruit because you're getting rid of the thorns and thistles. And then out of the family flows ministry into other people's lives where you show them to do the same. This is the teaching in the Bible. This is the way that it works. It's requirements for ministry. Starts with you, moves to your family, then moves outside of the church. Does that make sense? Yo, in James, we're going to be in James 1 for a second. I want to remind you of something else James said. James 1, verse 12, page 1343 in the Thompson chain. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, gives birth to death. If you know that stepping outside of this door and then turning right, going a block, and then turning left, you'll be killed in a car accident. If you knew that, if you knew it for certainty, what would be the easiest thing in the world to do? Do you get out the door, make a right, go a block, then make a left, and then wait for the car accident? How about you just don't go out the door? This is a process laid down in Scripture. Desires begin to come into us or from us 
that entice you away from the fruitfulness of God's Word. And once they've enticed you away and they're allowed to grow, they eventually give birth to death. So we better handle it in the desire stage. Did you notice in Mark, he said, the deceitfulness of wealth chokes out and other desires? There are some things man's not supposed to desire. Not because it's not in us. I assure you, it's naturally there. We're not supposed to desire certain things because they're contrary to the Word. We have to identify those things and cast them down. We're going to turn to Samuel. I'm going to use somebody as an example so that you'll hopefully remember this. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter, which is on page 308 in your Thompson chain, if that's what you have. Our topic this morning is fear, a false evidence that appears real. Keeping in mind that God's called every Christian to bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold, but there are things that creep into our lives that keep us from bearing fruit, that keep us from doing the good that God has called us to do, the good that we know that we should do and don't do. This is all those times you laid in bed when God told you to do something else, when you didn't pray and you watched TV, when God told you to go help Steve with his groceries and instead you watered your grass because it's what you wanted to do. All those thoughts that said, but if I don't water my grass, it'll die, nothing else. What about my stuff? What about me? Christians' lives are always centrifugal. They're focused on other people. And you know what an amazing thing happens? When Bobby cares more about Jennifer's life than his own, when he cares, when he esteems her as more important than him, and she esteems Tony more important than herself, and Tony esteems Charlotte more important than herself, everybody's needs get met in this way. And it forms the community of believers. This is what a church is. It's what a team is. It's when you love one another more than you love yourself. And so everybody is taking care of everybody in the, na- in the nation or kingdom of God. You know why that's important? The outside is supposed to look and go, my God, I've never seen 25 or 30 people that interacted like that. Are they all related? They're not. What, why do they all care about each other the way they do? I saw Craig cutting Alfonso's grass. Why would he do that? Alfonso must be paying him. No, that's not it. Why on earth would Patricia bring food for everybody in the church? Why? She must need something. She must want something. We do. We want love from each other. That's all we want. This is supposed to be an example of how the kingdom of God works. It's supposed to be working in our lives so that others can look and go, I'd like that. I wish. In my family it doesn't work that way. In my workplace it doesn't work that way. I want that. How do you get it? And then you get to tell them about your king. You know, the Bible tells you to be ready to answer everyone who asks you about your way of life. That's not usually how we think about it. We think of going out and witnessing. Go grab Bobby on an elevator and go, ha ha, captive audience, I got you. Let me tell you about Jesus. It can work that way, but that's not how it's supposed to work. You know how it's supposed to work? Judah's supposed to look and go, wow, Steve and Darnell's house is peaceful. It's happy. It's not a facade. It's not just alcohol induced. <laughs> you know, they're, they're happy. And he's supposed to want that and ask. Mr. Steve, why is your house different than my house? You're supposed to ask. If you're not being asked, we need to question whether or not we're living in a way that would make people ask. 
I don't say this to condemn you. Our job is to garden our hearts. If something's keeping you from being productive, whatever it is, tear it out. If it's the fear of man, Proverbs says that's a snare for all people, fear of men. If it's how you're viewed, if it's fear of loss, you know, they taught me in sales that man's motivated by three basic things. The desire to gain more, the fear of losing what you have, and greed, how people view you. Three basic things. Now, I would say that's a lost man motivated by those things because the Bible teaches me to throw all of that away for the glory of the kingdom of God and trust Him to take care of my needs. Y'all in Samuel 10? I want to read you something positive about the King Saul. The King Saul. You've not heard very many positive things about the King Saul, have you? You remember that that third seed, it sprung up for a while in the parable of the sower. It sprung up and was doing good, but something happened to it. What happened? It was choked out. God's desire for this plant was that it bear fruit, but it was choked out by something. 1 Samuel 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? I would say that's an honor, huh? He's been anointed as a king. When you leave me today... You will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zilzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Now, I picked up in the middle of the story, so this sounds funny. Saul was out looking for his father's donkeys when he meets the prophet Samuel, who anoints him as king over all of Israel. Now that Samuel's done that as proof that he would be king over all Israel, as proof that what God had just done through Samuel was right, he begins telling him future events that would happen to him in the next few days. This way, there would be something for, Samuel to, or something for Saul to place his trust in. You ever heard the expression blind faith? Like, oh, those Christians, they just have blind faith. Somebody told me on the Internet here recently that they felt like it was an abomination or a sin to ask for something to be explained or to have more than just blind faith. That's ridiculous. Blind faith is when you have no reason to believe the things that you do. That's not at all what Jesus asked. Jesus even said, if you don't believe the things that I say, at least believe the signs that you see. He's given us every reason to believe Him. In your life, He's fed you. He's clothed you. He's caused the sun to rise upon you. He's caused rain when you needed it. He's taken care of you your whole life long. There's every reason to believe in Him. What reason did He give you to doubt Him? Let's start there. And was it Him who did it? Was it Him who neglected you when you were little? Was it Him that allowed a bad thing to happen in your life? Was it really him or is there an enemy at work? In that parable of the sower that I was talking about, it wasn't God who sowed the thorns and the thistles. God only sowed good things into people's life. In James, I skipped over it, but he said every good thing comes from God. Every good thing. The negative things in your life did not come from God. There is an enemy at work. His name is Satan and it means adversary. Our job is to root up his work and cling to God's. 
Okay, so now Samuel's encouraging Saul. He's telling him future events that will happen to him so that he will have a basis for trusting in God and some reason to place faith here. And what did he tell him? He said, you're going to meet a couple guys uh, from Zilza on the border of Benjamin. Now verse 3. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats and another three loaves of bread and another a skin of wine. This is pretty detailed stuff, isn't it? How many times in church when you get a prophecy is it, you know, you're newly married and you will have children and they'll all be born naked, you know? Thank you very much. Who could have guessed that? And I'm not discouraging prophecy. This is very specific stuff, though. How many people you'll meet, how many skins of wine they'll be carrying, how many loaves of bread, how many goats, so that when it happens, there is no mistaking that God announced it in advance, right? This would build His trust. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, harps, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. What was the point of all of those other things that he said would happen? So that when it did happen, his faith would grow at each step. Each time when he first saw the two guys coming from Zilza, he would be encouraged. Oh, what God said is true. Then when he meets the other guys with the three goats and the so many loaves of bread and the so many skins of wine, he would be encouraged. And then when he would see the company of prophets coming, he would be encouraged. Then when the Spirit of God hit him and he began to prophesy, he would be encouraged. And the result would be his life would be transformed from the man that he was into the man that God called him to be. God's Word tells us things about our lives. It tells us things that will happen. It tells us the right way to live so that when you do it and you are obedient to it, your trust and your faith in God will grow. The problem with us is, unlike Saul who set out and went in the direction that God said to go and met the people that God told him he would meet, we hear the Word and then we sit on our salvation in the seats. And we don't go. And we don't do. And so we never see a chance for God's Word to be true. We never get a chance for our trust to grow because we never laid it on the line, believed it was true, and went out and did something. What happens if Saul says, this is very good, Samuel. I believe you. I think it's wonderful. I acknowledge that you're right. In fact, it will be the core statement of my belief. You could even call it my doctrinal statement. And then he sat right there and didn't go do any of these things. What kind of faith would that be? The book of James says it's not the kind of faith that saves you. It's not what God wants because you don't grow. You don't produce fruit in your life. Guys, your lives are supposed to be growing larger into an abundant life. Alfonso's life should affect the May's life. The Richard's life should affect the Hall's life. The Hall's life should affect the Piro's and the Piro's, the Stevens, and on and on and on. Our lives are supposed to be growing into an abundant life by putting the Word into action and extending outward. 
God's will for you is not to sit at home and play computer games. It's not to sit at home and watch movies. It's not just to go to work and work hard and your life surround with just you. Your lives are supposed to affect everybody else around you by loving them, serving them. And everybody's needs will be met. See, but it's hard. I don't feel accepted. When I get there, I don't know what to talk about. It's awkward. I called them and they didn't call back. Faith doesn't give up right away, guys. You know, maybe they were in the shower. I stopped by somebody's house the other day and I knocked on the door. And I'm telling you, it's just a devilish thought. First thing happened, I thought, must not want to talk to me. They didn't answer the door. Cars are there, they didn't answer the door. They were in the shower. You know, I didn't want to talk to them while they were in the shower. <laughs> Sometimes we've got to cut each other a little slack. He said, well, I just never felt like I meshed. How hard did you work to mesh? Two people that love each other for 20 years don't mesh every day. Except my wife and I, of course. <laughs> Those of you who know me know that's not true. The whole point was he was turned into a different person. As you go on, he says, all of these signs were fulfilled. All of these signs were fulfilled, what verse 9 says. So Saul got a brand new start in life, right? He was changed into a different person by putting into practice what God's Word said and finding out at each step it's true. It works. You mean when I venture out and I do what God's Word says, it results in a better life? Wow. Then maybe I'll try it in this new area. It worked. Maybe I'll try it in this new area. It worked. And you find out after years of doing this that it's worth trusting even when everything in you says, no, don't do it. Keep your money. <laughs> Keep every bit of it. Hoard it. And the Lord's telling you, no, I, I want you to buy Brad food. He said, no, I need this money. I've been without it before. It was no fun. Don't want to do it again. And the Lord's telling you, no, I want you to do this. No, uh, thank you. Pick somebody else. Steve will do it. You know? You learn to trust and you learn to do it. Trust is faith. The two words are synonymous. Well, if Saul was changed into a different person, if his whole life was transformed by putting his trust in the Lord, then why is his reputation so bad? What happened? Is it possible that he had a seed planted in him, planted in good soil, but thorns and thistles that went untended in his life eventually choked it out? You see, he had a good start. Is the word planted? Yes. Just like in the parable of the sower. And it begins to grow. He becomes king. He does what God tells him to do. Then he gets a big test. Let's turn to Samuel 13. In Samuel 13, starting in verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. Who are the Philistines? These are enemies of God. They're enemies of Israel. And they were put in Israel's life as a testing stone to see whether or not Israel would do what God told them to do. Some of the obstacles in your life are there for no other reason, the Bible says, than the proving of your faith. Do you really trust God? It's easy to say you trust God until you have a reason not to. <laughs> you know, obedience is never really tested until you don't want to do it. If I say, hey, Judah, I need you to be obedient to me, son. Eat this whole bowl of ice cream. Now, how hard is that? Is that a real test of Judah's obedience? Probably not, huh? But if I need him to eat green beans... Actually, this kid eats everything. He's a good boy. But do you understand what I'm trying to say? Obedience is tested when you don't want to do what you're being asked to do. Those are the weeds in your life. 
when you know the good that you should do, but you really don't want to do it. These are the times when Christians fail. We talk about all the time the other kind when we fail. When a Christian did something they shouldn't do. (gasps) Did you hear? Brother Stevens did this or did that. Oh, and we almost rejoice in it. The man of God fell. I can't believe he did that. That's not even really what the Bible focuses on. The Bible focuses on the good you're supposed to do and didn't do. Yeah, I may have blown it a thousand times, but I am putting my faith into action by trying to do the good that I know to do. And it's not a system of weights here. I'm not hoping the one will outweigh the other. It's just, I can't do anything about the times that I screwed up in the past. I can only try to do good in the future, and that's what I'm trying to do. Because God's purchased me, and I believe I'm new. You may have blown it this week. Forget about it. Press on heavenward. Do what God told you to do. The gospel's about a regeneration, a rebirth, a new start. Not one or two, but every time you screw up. Somebody said to me one time that I preach jailhouse religion. I asked them how it was they got saved. Jesus said that He came to preach good news to those who were imprisoned. If you've never been in a jail of one kind or another, you never received the gospel. I know exactly what it is like to be a slave to things that I do not want to do and to be liberated by the power of God. Whether the bars were physically there in your life or not is beside the point. It's the same salvation. I praise God for jailhouse religion. And what they meant was that I was simply an opportunist, that it would wear off when you experience freedom. Well, I'm happy here to be 13 years later, still loving the Lord. We're still in 1 Samuel 13. We're still fighting with the Philistines. They're assembled. Verse 5, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and in thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. The situation here is desperate. The Bible calls it critical. So much so that Christians are going to hide among the thorns. Actually Hebrews, but you understand what I'm saying in the type. They go and hide in caves. In some, some crossed the Jordan, which is a symbol of Jesus in the Bible. You had to cross over the Jordan to get into the promised land. And you had to cross it at a time in life when it was at flood stage. And you had to step off believing that God would be your salvation. This was a type of Jesus. And every Israelite had to cross through it to get into the promised land. So if they've gotten into the promised land by crossing something that is like Jesus, and now because of hard situations, they are running back the other way, what does that tell you? They're on the right road. They're going the wrong direction. This is backsliding. might even be falling away. Why? Because of a critical situation. Doesn't that sound like the parable of the sower to you? Some fell on hard path, never grew. Some had shallow roots and because of persecution and hardship gave up the faith. Same thing's going on here. But we were focusing on the third seed. Do you remember? What was the third seed, Matthew? The third seed was the one with the thorns. 
There we go. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set for him by Samuel. I didn't read it to you in the previous exchange, but the last event... Samuel tells Saul, when you go, you're going to meet these two guys. Then you're going to meet these three. Then you're going to meet a company of prophets. Then the Spirit of God is going to come upon you and you're going to prophesy. And then when you get to Michmash at Gilgal, I want you to wait seven days for me until I come and sacrifice. Now, item one happened. Item two happened. Item three happened. Item four happened. And Saul's a new person. The problem is, now we're in a critical situation All the troops are quaking with fear. Israelites are going to hide in caves. And Saul's waiting. A new man, new person. The Word of God firmly planted in his heart. And fear is starting to rise in him. Samuel said he would be here. Day's almost over. He's not here. Where's Samuel? I know God's been true in my life up to this point, but in this situation, he's just not coming through. That's exactly what's happening to him quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Before we get to his answer, Samuel said, Hey, man, You're going to meet two guys. Then you're going to meet three. This is going to happen with loaves. This is going to happen with wine and goats. Then you're going to meet a company of prophets. Then the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you. You're going to be changed. Then go to this place. Wait seven days. Everything had happened flawlessly. But now he's standing in a critical situation surrounded by the enemies of God. Other Christians, if you will, are running and hiding. His heart's being tested. He's the king. If he doesn't do what God says, how can we expect anybody under his dominion to do what God says? He's the example. Friends, you're called to be kings. The Bible says you are a kingdom of priests, anointed, a kingdom of rulers with God. You're priests in your own home. You're kings with Jesus. Others are watching you who wear the name Christian to see whether or not you do what God says. Sometimes the reason that you're in a situation where somebody's slapping your face is because they simply want to see if you'll do what your king says to do, which is turn the other cheek. And in all the years that they've seen faces slapped, they've never seen anybody do it. Who's going to stand up and be a real Christian? Who's going to take their stand and let the Word of God be fruitful in their life instead of letting the flesh choke it out? Let's see if it's so. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. What's wrong with that? He had been specifically told not to do that. I want you to wait seven days until I get there. But he saw something with his eyes. This is why the Word says we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Then after he saw something with his eyes, he thought something. 
There are some thoughts you're not allowed to have. When you get them in your head, you have to cast them out. Let me give you a good one. If you're married, you're not allowed to even think, you know, what would it be like to be married to Darnell? She's in covenant with somebody else. You're in covenant with... You're not even allowed to think that. He said, well, that was just an innocent thought. If it's allowed to linger, it becomes something that is not innocent. Since it's contrary to the Word of God, you've cast it out. Take it to its logical conclusions. Wonder what it would be like to be married to Darnell. If I think about that very long, I have to kill Jennifer in my mind, don't I? Because I'm already married to her. I have to tear Darnell away from Steve, don't I? The logical conclusion of this thought takes us to a place that the Bible says we don't go. So what do you do? As soon as that thought comes up, you get rid of it. Because if you don't, what was Saul's thought? What did he say his thought was? The, the, the Philistines are assembled here and the troops are scattering. I thought, what if you don't come? He wasn't allowed to think that because the prophet said he was coming. And when he thought that, he felt compelled to do something God said he shouldn't do. When you're considering doing what God told you to do and you get a thought that is to the contrary, you're not allowed to harbor it. Don't nurse it. Don't give it attention. Don't allow it to grow. It's a weed. It was something planted there to keep you from doing what God told you to do. And if you allow it to grow, it will choke you and choke you and choke you until you do not produce the fruit that God called you to produce produce you know people don't end up shut-ins in their house overnight man was not made to be an antisocial creature you're made to interact with people your lives as designed by God were made to interact with people it starts one step at a time it's too far it's too hard I'm too tired they don't really receive me well and before long, the word that tells you that you're supposed to be interacting with everybody like leaven working through a loaf has been choked out and you're hiding in your room scared like a little ferret that everything around you is going to eat you or hurt you, protecting the tiny little bit that you have. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Everybody put that talent to use. They gained more. And so when the king came, they were given more. The one that protected the little bit that he had, what was happened? The king took away even what he had and threw him outside as wicked. Why? Because it's not what he was called to do. He was called to get an increase. The king of kings has put a deposit in your life. Thoughts rise against that deposit and they will compel you to do something else. You're not even allowed to entertain it because it will cause you to be unproductive. You are supposed to be producing an increase. Does that mean that you have to be out preaching Jesus on a corner? No, it means you need to be living a life of love as led by the Holy Spirit in any direction He would lead you. You may never mention the word Jesus, but be loving everybody around you and then be able to see Jesus. Peter calls it like a living epistle. I'm not ashamed of the name Jesus, and I'll shout it from the rooftops, but it doesn't do any good if they don't see it in my life. It doesn't do any good. They hear it shouted everywhere. How many churches are within two miles of here? Why are the neighbors not thronging to it? Why is their parking lot empty? Some questions don't need answers, do they? He thought and he felt compelled. Do you know what the result of this compulsive act was? Do you know what the result was? 
the kingdom of Israel was torn out of his hands and given to somebody else. The other person was David. Acts 13 tells us why God gave the kingdom to David. Does anybody know? So simple. It is so simple. David said to have a heart after God's own heart, right? Well, what does that mean? I mean, Bobby's heart and my heart are roughly the same size. He's got some new plumbing in his here recently that I don't have. But they're roughly the same. So what does it mean to say somebody has a heart like somebody else? You know what Acts 13 says? It says because he would do what God told him to do. That's what God calls a heart like his. Somebody who will do what he was told to do. Do you think David dealt with fear? Oh, if he was a human being, he did. Do you think when he was a boy and he faced a lion and a tiger defending his father's sheep, he was scared? Of course he was. But he did it anyway because it's what he was called to do. When he was just a ruddy boy and handsome, the Bible says, and his brothers were shaming him, and Eliab said, you have a wicked and sinful heart, and Goliath is out in the field insulting Israel. Do you think David was scared when he faced him? I assure you that he was. And he did it anyway. When the devil presents you with fear, which is false evidence appearing real, it's not wrong to feel it. It's wrong to yield to it. Abraham, Romans 4 says, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that his wife's womb was barren. He faced it. It wasn't wrong for him to acknowledge that these are the circumstances. It wouldn't be wrong for Saul to say, hey, man, the troops are scattering and the Philistines are everywhere. It is not wrong to acknowledge your circumstances. It's wrong to be overcome by them. It is not wrong to say I'm uncomfortable in a crowd. I feel funny around lots of people. It's wrong for that feeling to compel you to do something that the Word says not to do, which is run and hide. It is totally normal when speaking with somebody and you feel that thump in your chest and in your stomach like you're supposed to be telling them about Jesus. Like the words are starting to come to your mind. It is totally normal to be apprehensive, to be scared, to wonder, what will Matthew think if I tell him that? And what about my life? It's not perfect. It's totally normal. And yet it's sin if that good that God's put on your heart to do, you don't do because of a weed in your life. Guys, we've got to get this right. If you don't do it, you who are called by the name of Christ, Christians, little Christ, if you don't do it as God's representatives, who will? You say, but I'm not suited for it. Pick somebody else. God already sent you Aaron, just like He sent Moses. You've got him on your left and right. You can't escape the call that's what you're called to do. You are called to be like Jesus in every situation. Don't let something choke the Word out of your life. Samuel provides another test for Saul, and it's in 1 Samuel 15. We're going to wrap it up here very soon. In 1 Samuel 15, in the first three verses, you see the test being laid out. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. 
That's pretty rough, isn't it? You have to do something really horrific for God to want to wipe out a whole people from the face of the earth. I've taught a lot about the Amalekites and I'm not going to do that today. But let me just tell you that this was deserved. Say, so, well, how could an infant deserve it? The infant didn't. Unfortunately, my children will suffer if I fall into sin. There's a lot at stake in my life. If I don't do well in the Lord, there's a good chance it might affect your lives too. Our sin never affects just us, even if you're a single person living alone. Your sin always affects other people. You know why? If sin is the good that you know to do, that you don't do, whoever you didn't do it for was affected. They have a lack in their life because you weren't obedient. See, when you start to get this picture, we are all dependent upon each other. Bobby and Tony have something that I need. I have something that they need. We're interdependent with one another. No man's an island. We live in an individualistic society. The Bible doesn't present society that way. It presents it as very communal. Nick and Lindy interacting with Greg and Charlotte, interacting with David and Jennifer, and our lives interacting with each other. That's what Jesus called His church. Do you ever notice that Jesus entrusted His mother at His death to a disciple and not to one of His brothers or sisters? What's that tell you about family relationships versus church? That's just another question that probably doesn't need to be answered. Later in 1 Samuel 15, starting in the 17th verse, what was the word? He was told, go wipe out all of the Amalekites, right? Starting in verse 17. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He's reminding him of all that God's done in his life. All that God was faithful to him for. And he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back their king. That can't be true, can it? You can't completely destroy something and bring it back, huh? Somehow he didn't see the contradiction. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Now it's not the Lord my God anymore. Now it's the Lord your God, Samuel. He said, and by the way, I know we weren't obedient, really. I mean, we kind of were. But look, I brought back Agag. He's here. And all that stuff I was supposed to destroy, we're going to give it to God. How many times in our life has God told us to do something? Point blank, you know. Jennifer's supposed to love Tony. They're supposed to go to lunch together. They're supposed to build a relationship. And you kind of did it, but you really did what you wanted to do and did just enough to say, I was obedient. I was obedient. The Lord told me to go and, and, and I went. Yeah, I didn't do everything He told me to do, but I, I, I went. Ever been on a mission? Well, some people go on a mission trip because it sounds exciting to go out of the country. 
for them it's a mini vacation. And what God told them to do was go and love and serve the people. And what they went is they went and saw and discovered and experienced. They really go on a mission trip? I get asked a lot to do uh, references for people because I've been a pastor for a while. It's important to me that if I give you a reference to go on a mission trip, that you be going for the people and not that you go because you've never seen Costa Rica or Ireland or got to love mission trips to Hawaii, right? But I did obey the Lord. He goes on. Look at Samuel's response to him, verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What's God really after? What's your obedience? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Did he have a good idea? It was a good idea to bring back their king. It was a good idea to save some of the plunder to give to God. But it was not what God told him to do. It was a weed. It needed to be choked out of his life. God has given us roles. He's given us roles as husbands, as leaders, as men called in ministry. He's given us roles as wives, as mothers, as women called to live lives worthy of respect. To the extent that you reject the role that God has given you for something lesser, something easier, something safer, you're rejecting God's purpose for your life and rejecting God. That's exactly what he did. He was called to be a king, obedient to God. And instead, he acted as something lesser, something base. Men are often called to be the providers for their families. But because it's hard, they retreat into any other role they can find. They go discover themselves by Corvettes and marry younger wives. Whatever it takes to not do what God's called them to do. Examine the motives in your life. Are you just trying to... Do you want to go back to school to learn because it's what God's called you to do? Or because you despise being an adult and still want to live like a child? Do you want to be a traveling salesman because it's what God's called you to do and you are in the will of God everywhere you go or because you just can't handle family life. We need to examine our motives and find out whether it's weeds or whether it's God's Word and it's growth. There's only one thing that will matter and only one thing you'll leave on this earth when you leave. Your legacy will be what you accomplish for God and it will be reflected in your children. And those of you that have a tendency to blame your parents for things, what do you think your kids are going to think about you if you don't live in the will of God? Why did Samuel be so hard on Saul? And what was Saul's real problem? Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. This guy was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. God would have given him victory everywhere that he went. He had the armies of Israel at his command and he was scared of them. The heart of David, Acts tells us, was that he would do whatever God told him to do. That's Acts 13:22. Proverbs 29:25 tells us that the fear of man is a snare. Saul found 
that snare because he was scared of the people. And it kept him from being productive. It was something that choked out his life. In contrast, David's heart, Psalm 141, verse 4 and 5, says, Oh, that a righteous man would strike me to turn me from wickedness. For I delight in the law of the Lord. It is better to be rebuked and get a chance to correct your behavior than to just let it go on. Don't you get mad at me if I've told you the truth, even if I do it in a really harsh way. It's a kindness. You should rather be hit in the head than go on about your life in a way that's not pleasing to God. I can't help it. It's my calling. If I don't point it out, then God holds me accountable. Colossians tells us that we set our heart on God. That it has to be set like a radio dial. Have you ever noticed in your car how close some of the stations are? I mean, they even bleed into each other. Our heart doesn't get set on God very easily. In fact, when you're trying to set it on God, there's all these other stations that are competing with it. It's, you know, station number M-E-E, me. (laughs) It's to the left of God, it's to the right of God, it's above God, and it's beneath God. It's used to being Lord of your life, what you want to do, when you want to do it. To set your heart on God is a hard thing. But it's the only way to be successful in the kingdom. Do whatever it takes to adjust the dial in your heart. To tune in to His voice. He's God. You're the man. You need to tune your ears to His command. That's a Jason Upton lyric, but I love it. Ephesians 5 says that the way that you are renewed is to be washed in the water of the Word. Say, Eric, why are you always harping on reading the Word? Why do you teach the Word? Why do you have Bible questions and answer nights and all of those things? It's because by absorbing this Word more and more and more, at least there is something that competes with the weeds. The weeds are there from birth. All the things that you should do or all the things that you shouldn't do, all of those bad thoughts are there. By reading the Word, you at least interject God's thoughts and the struggle can begin. Let's close with Corinthians 2. I'm sorry, Corinthians 10. You know, our church teaches freedoms in so many areas. I'm probably one of the only churches around that although I don't want a vending machine in here for cigarettes, I don't care if you smoke. Probably one of the only churches around that although I don't want you know, a keg sitting in here on Sunday morning teach you that the Bible does not teach against drinking. None of those things are sins, okay? But they can be sin. I want to read you something before I read you the Corinthian Scripture. I got this out of the Living Bible. Probably the only time in my life I've ever quoted the Living Bible. But it's good. I'm going to cling to truth wherever I can find it. I want to encourage you this about freedoms, okay? Especially as you examine the freedoms in my life, and I examine the freedoms that are in your life. I want you to hear what this verse says. This is 1 Corinthians 6.12. You ought to write this down. Okay? It says, I can do anything that I want to do if Christ has not said no. But some of these things aren't good for me. Even if I'm allowed to do them, I will refuse to if I think they might get such a grip on me that I can't easily stop when I want to. 
That's the verse in Corinthians that in your NIV says everything's permissible but not everything's profitable. We need to examine our lives. Number one, find out whether you're doing the will of God or whether the weeds are choking it out. Number two, the things that are disputable, that are questionable, decide whether or not it's good for you to do. There are a lot of things that I can do that Jesus has not said no to that are not necessarily profitable for my life. I want to leave you with that thought before I read the next verse. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm driving at here? I'm not going to lay rules and restrictions on anybody. That's not the freedom that we were called to. I won't accept rules and restrictions from you. A few weeks ago, I was posed with a question. Eric, I think more people would come to your church if you did this and this. I said, then more people won't come to our church. It's okay. I'm not going to change what the gospel says, even if that makes it more palatable to people. The intentions and the heart were right. That was a good thing that I was asked. The person asking was asking with a right intention. I have to take my stand where the Word says. But there are some things that I'm free to do that I just shouldn't if it's going to get a grip on my life that it shouldn't have. And you know what? That's different in every person's life. Something that grips Steve may not grip me. Something that grips me may not grip Brad. There's a movie here recently that somebody loved and raved about, and there's nothing wrong with the movie. It's not a movie I can watch. There are things in it that will grip me that didn't grip those people at all. We need to be wise about our freedoms. Now let me move on to this last verse, and we're going to close. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians 10, which is on page 1288 in the Thompson Chain. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you don't get anything else out of this message, you need to understand that there are thoughts that you should not have. You need to examine every thought that comes into your mind and decide whether or not it's consistent with the knowledge that you have of Christ. If it's consistent, then you can keep it. If it's not consistent, throw it out before it compels you to do something or not do something that God has told you to do. This will keep you from being unfruitful. It will keep you from being unproductive. Your life should be growing and expanding in everybody else's lives and we'll all benefit from it. Every one of us will be benefited by the good things that happens in your life as a result of your obedience to the King because our lives are all serving each other. Isn't that awesome? That's a church I want to be a part of. I never wanted to join a social organization. I wasn't looking for a country club membership. I was looking to build the church, number one, with another pastor who put the Word into practice, and number two, a church where the people were sincere about each other, where it was real. Like you, my whole life, I've seen this done in an insincere way, where people wanted to build buildings. They wanted the money out of your pocket in a plate. They wanted prestige. They wanted to say that they were a part of something that a man could be honored in. I don't want any of that. I want to see the kingdom grow in your lives. And this is how it's done. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.
You remember the scripture that Judah wrote or said this morning? Proverbs 4.23 said, Above all else, guard your hearts. It's the wellspring of life. The way a heart gets poisoned is by entertaining a thought that it shouldn't have. Don't let your hearts be poisoned. Once a well gets dirty, it's harder to clean the water. It's easier not to let it get dirty.